Hello, fellow griever. This is the Leftover Pieces Suicide Loss Conversations podcast, and I am Melissa, your host. This week, you have found yourself with me for one of my shorter, solo, down-the-rabbit-hole episodes. Here, I take you with me on a journey of sorts, through thoughts in my own griefy mind. Some days, I may tackle topics as if I am in Alice's shoes, slaying the Jabberwocky, and on others, I may end up in my own pool of tears, or I may just go a bit sideways and paint the proverbial roses red, but I always promise an adventure. So let's dive down the rabbit hole and see just what sorts of madness we might discover together. I am glad you have joined me, because while I do know how lonely this grief is, I also believe we needn't be alone. Welcome. Welcome to today's episode. You have found yourself, as I said, down the rabbit hole. And today, I'm feeling a little bit feisty. And I'm going to talk about how my podcast is not a mental health or suicide prevention podcast. And I pause on purpose because I want you to think about that for just a minute. And I hope that it hits you correctly because when I say that it isn't meant in any way to take away from mental health awareness or suicide prevention. But the reason I'm talking about it is because the longer I've done this podcast, the longer I've had myself out there working with other grievers, even on my website, the more I have received messages that lead me to a place to want to talk about this. So whether it's messages or emails, I have received a decent amount of them where people want to come on the podcast and talk about suicide prevention, whether it's they've written a book or they work in that space or as a mental health advocate, they want to come on and talk about mental health as a form of suicide prevention. So it's really, you know, the suicide prevention thing that comes up over and over again. And maybe it's too audacious of me to say it out loud. That's what I've been thinking is, am I allowed to say out loud that I am not a suicide prevention podcast? And I've decided unequivocally that I am allowed to say it, that it is okay to not be a suicide prevention podcast. That doesn't mean that I don't feel like I can come alongside of people and support them. And I even think that postvention can often become prevention in itself. But this podcast was created for and still exists for the bereaved by suicide. It is a place to have conversations around suicide loss and how we live after the loss. I think there are a lot of places to talk about prevention. This just doesn't happen to be one of those. And so 
I say that in hope that that is something that resonates with you, that you're looking for a place where your grief is acknowledged and accepted and seen, and that we discuss surviving this. We discuss finding hope and we discuss learning to heal from our trauma so that we can learn to live alongside of our loss and be happy again. But again, this is for people that have lost someone by suicide. And I want to stay true to my mission, which is where I believe that we can pick up the pieces of our shattered lives after suicide loss. And I believe we can do this through meaningful conversations. I think we can do it with mindful resources and with connected community. And I personally will fiercely protect your heart because as a bereaved by suicide loss myself, I understand how activating it can be to listen to prevention messages that may simply incite more guilt or sadness when we're really just wanting to be supported and know that we can survive this. So with that, I'm going to step aside a little bit and talk specifically about grief a little bit today. Since losing my son Alex to suicide just over six years ago, I have been immersed in the world of being a griever, but also the study of grief and all things bereaved. And so I'm going to start a little bit with some of the history of grief, because I think it's really interesting for those of you that are listening here in North America in what we often call the Western world, we have such a bizarre phenomenon occurring the last probably century or maybe not quite in how we grieve because let's face it, this is a fairly new country. So there were a lot of traditions and things originally brought to this country by the people that settled it. A lot of those settlers came from places like Africa and Europe because of the proximity of them coming across the Atlantic ocean. But then obviously over time, there were other cultures that came in. There were also the indigenous people that were originally here that had their own traditions and customs as well. And so being kind of the melting pot we are, I feel like it's lent itself to this like lostness that we seem to have with regards to grief. So it's taken me to this place of looking backwards and going back to almost a hundred, a little over a hundred years ago in the early 1900s, Freud, Sigmund Freud, the psychologist, um, published a paper called Mourning and Melancholia. And in that he proposed that the bereaved needed to engage in the work of the grief process, which he defined as breaking bonds with the deceased so that you could adjust to your new life and form new relationships that would allow you to then be over the grief because you've done that work. To even hear myself say that out loud makes me just kind of shudder and shake my head and go, how could I possibly 
break my bond with my child. And yes, I have to adjust to a new life, but how does forming any new relationship in this loss, how does that fix it? Or how does that make me healed? I do believe in healing, by the way, but that's a whole nother, that isn't what is addressed here. So he thought it was best to overcome, to be able to overcome your grief. It was best if you would throw yourself into distracting new ventures. So in other words, you know, just distract yourself and you would learn to move on. In some ways, I feel like we've kind of come full circle. When I read that, it makes me shudder. But sometimes it makes me think that we're not as far from that as we maybe think we are. So it was a long time before grief was ever a major study again. And it kind of brings us to the 60s when the most, one of the models that people refer to the most would be the one of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And I won't go into a deep dive on this. It could be a rabbit hole episode all in itself because Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's, a lot of the body of her work was actually done with dying patients and the process of dying. Um, so like terminally ill and the five stages that have become so famous that she's known for were actually more meant for the dying process, not grief, not for grievers, but it kind of became known as that and has been adapted by that over the years. And we now know that grief is not quite so clear as to have five stages, that it's much more nebulous, that it's much more all over the place. So versus, you know, think of it being by her model, a straight line, where you move from one to the other, and there's an end, there's a beginning, there's an end. And think of it being more nebulous as something where the line is going up and down and around and curving and over and back. And there may not even be the, the lines may connect, they may not be a beginning and an end. Because grief really is continually changing. And then around the turn of the century, around 2000, there were, there was another study done and it was called the dual process model of grief. And again, the interesting thing about a lot of these are people that have written these eminent psychologists and people in the field of mental health they may or may not have experienced the losses that they were studying or writing about. So to me, that's a phenomenon in itself is people teaching you how to grieve that may not have grieved the loss that you're experiencing. And so that's a whole nother thing. But in this model, they talked about two models of engaging in the stress involving your loss and the stress involved in returning to normalcy. So it was this dual process of grief. So there was loss-oriented grief and, and restorative organization to your life process. So again, to even think about some of that, it just makes my head kind of hurt because I'm thinking to myself, it sounds so clinical. And I don't feel like what I have experienced, what I still experience is necessarily something that can fit inside of a clinical diagnostic book. And this leads me to talk a little bit about the philosophy of things like grief. 
And I've talked about it a little bit before. I haven't done a deeper exploration of this on this particular podcast. I may at some point, but I fancy myself what I used to call a realist for many, many, as long as I can remember, I used to always say, I'm just a realist at heart. I tend to default to things that seem sometimes harsh or cold to others. I'm I'm a very warm, caring person, but I just have always had what I, I guess maybe matter of fact is a good way to put it. And it was a number of years ago that I actually found out and embrace the idea that I'm a Stoic. And so by Stoic, I mean with a capital S, not a small s. Because if you're talking about just the definition of the word Stoic, you think about someone who can just handle a whole lot of pain and hardship without actually showing any emotion or ever voicing their complaints about what may be happening. And I'm here to tell you that I did. I, that's that's not what I'm talking about with Stoicism, with a capital S. I'm talking about ancient philosophy, so ancient that it goes back to Zeno and Athens in the third century BCE. So obviously, it's a very ancient school of thought, but it has persisted. And it's kind of seen a resurgence lately, which the irony of that was probably when I discovered, oh, yeah, that's me. That's what I'm talking about. But I feel like I've, on some level, been practicing these virtues for a lot of my life. The reason I bring it up is that there are reminders or phrases in Latin that the people that study Stoic philosophy often refer to, some of them are Amor Fati, Premeditatio Malorium, and then Memento Mori, and that's the one I'm actually talking about. The idea of Memento Mori, it actually means we all will die, or we all have to die. And the idea that death is just a part of life, and... It's it's not about death. The focus isn't on death with the idea of memento mori. The focus is on making the most of life while it's here and being aware that at any moment we can go. It's not the same as focusing on any moment we can go. But the idea is something that I feel like I struggled with more after I lost Alex, because being faced with being a realist or a stoic at heart after losing my son was a really big challenge for me because it caused me to do a lot of the questioning and stuff that is natural with the grieving process. And so, yes, I too faced the questioning of my belief system And like a lot of people, after doing the work, I came back to feeling not only like I did before, but in many ways stronger than I did before. And again, I will probably at some point spend an episode talking more about stoicism because I feel like it has been hugely powerful in helping me learn to heal and to learn to live alongside of this effectively. 
But here's the thing about death. It's an enigma that we all face. This is the, you know, kind of the idea behind Memento Mori. Yet none of us know what's going to happen when we're gone. So it's like the unknown piece of what happens when we're gone is so all consuming to us that it's an entire subculture in itself, if we think about it. So again, I don't want to go into philosophy and get too deep here. But something I thought about here, this will lighten the mood. So something I thought about recently was, I was watching The Wizard of Oz a couple of months ago. And it was just a strange thing that I had never picked up on before. But now that I you know, we pay attention and hear things based on our own life experiences. And at the end of it, when Dorothy's at the hot air balloon talking about, or maybe it's not right when she's at the balloon, but it's around that time when she's getting ready to go back and she tells the wizard that she has to go home. One of the things she said is her aunt and uncle cannot afford to go into mourning that it would be too expensive. So she has to go home (laughs) because they can't afford to go into, into mourning because of how expensive it would be. And this goes back to kind of what I was talking about before with the fact that historically across the world, there have been all sorts of ways we have chosen to grieve all sorts of customs, everything from the number of days that people are allowed or expected to grieve. It can be anywhere from three days to there's customs that have things lined out for people for three years. I'm sure there's way more than I re- I looked at and researched, but I read lots of stuff about how people are expected or supposed to dress. Obviously we all think of black as the color of mourning or funerals or grief. And traditionally it has, there is a lot of dark colors, including black being the predominant one, but there's a lot of cultures that white is the color of grief or mourning. There's some where I see like particular grief relationships, like maybe a spouse was supposed to, supposed to specifically wear purple so that she could be designated as a griever. We lack so much of this in our society. Like the reason I think some of this is interesting and important is when you look at other cultures, they spent time paying attention to the relationships that we have with the deceased. They pay attention to the importance that the deceased have in our lives. And you notice I say have, because just because someone's gone doesn't mean they are no longer important to us, that they don't continue to be in our thoughts, that they don't continue to impact us and our choices and our decisions and how we live, because we absolutely know that they do. And so there's been many cultures that have, have and do acknowledge that importance by putting these rituals and customs into place and acknowledging someone for the grief that they're going through physically and visually. So other people know in our culture, we do our very best to kind of ignore it and closet it and put it away. And, you know, we may have a funeral and then we're like chip, chip back to life and back to just going on and, and, you know, kind of dealing with it in private. We don't, you know, do anything. We don't wear veils. We don't put anything on the door. We don't do things to 
call attention to the fact that we've had a loss that's so great. And I find that interesting because we do things to acknowledge when someone's gotten married. We do things to acknowledge when someone's had a baby. There's even, you know, we put signs in the yard. We have showers. We have, um, you know, we change things to look different in our environment and in our homes. And, you know, we may wear, um, you know, t-shirts that proclaim that we're a mother or a father. We, we do things that allow ourselves to be designated in these celebratory things, but we want to hide anything that appears to be sad or not happy from the world. And that to me is a condition of our culture that we don't want to deal with anything that's somehow sad. I often hear people in discussions, if they talk about someone they lost or whatever, and they'll say, Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bring the conversation down. Or let's not talk about that because I don't want to cry. And I just think that's so sad in itself, because it's fine to laugh. Why is it not fine to cry? Like we can't have sadness without happiness. We can't have happiness without sadness. They can't exist by themselves. There has to be a counterpoint to each of them. And so I guess what I want to do is try to help everybody understand that we have a choice. We can have hard conversations. We can be someone who is willing to be comfortable in the uncomfortable for the sake of helping normalize or destigmatize grief in itself and loss and the missing of our loved one and the talking about our loved one. And so I realize I'm on a bit of a pedestal, but I'll probably stay up here as I finish this episode and just keep, you know, going down the same road I am. But I believe that as grievers, we need each other and not just each other as grievers. We need the people that love us around us. We need our community in order to survive, in order to get get to a place to be able to live better with this. We have to be able to make personal choices that are hard and get the support we need to do those. We need to be able to understand that yes, this is complicated and yes, this is hard, but it can be done. We need to be able to talk about things for inclusion and education and compassion, for goodness sakes, for compassion. We need to expand our knowledge. We have to expand our communities. We need to be less timid and more bold. We need to be willing to be vulnerable so we can be brave. And we need to know that it's okay to be happy and to be sad. I do this podcast because I want people that are grieving by suicide loss, those of us that feel voiceless, to be heard. I want those of us that feel closeted in our grief and in our mourning to be seen. And I want those of us that feel so very lonely to find a place to be companioned. 
And so I'm going to keep having these hard conversations. I'm going to keep talking to the bereaved and the experts and the healers. And I'm going to keep telling you that I believe that you can pick up your leftover pieces and figure out how to do this, but you don't have to do it alone. Talk soon. So we'll conclude here for today, but I just wanted to say a few things before you go. If you're new to the podcast and have not listened to the very first episode called Intro Episode Start Here, all the way back at the beginning of season one, I would encourage you to do so so that you know what to expect from the leftover pieces because I do have several different styles of episodes that I record and we do release weekly almost all of the time. So I hope that you will come back often to join us in this community of suicide loss survivors. If you have not already, also I would encourage you to check out the leftoverpieces.com where you can find and have access to all of the things that I currently offer. Some of those things are online Zoom support groups, links to my books, educational opportunities that I'm adding all the time, as well as different downloadables and resources for all suicide loss survivors. And if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, or you'd just like to connect with me for any other reason, you can do it through the website as well. So until next time, I just want to remind you that I know how lonely this grief is, but you don't have to be alone. Talk soon.